Dauchy's biology recorded the 7th of April 2022 photosynthesis. Photosynthesis, let's get into this discussion of sunlight and transfer of energy. Photosynthesis, let's get into this process of chemical yeah. reactions. Plants take water, sun, and CO2 to make glucose, the sugar that they use for food. They also put oxygen into the air so we can share because oxygen is everywhere. The energy transforms from solar to chemical all the time, everywhere. The process is identical in every plant and every tree, enabling all living things to be. Photosynthesis, let's get into this discussion of sunlight and transfer of energy. Photosynthesis, let's get into this process of chemical. Isn't this the coolest way to study? You're in private study or you're waiting at the train station. You've got your earbuds in. Look around. Everyone who sees you thinks you're listening to some cool music. Well, let's let them think that, shall we? Just nod your head and tap your foot. I won't tell them what you're really listening to if you don't. It'll be our little secret. And in the meanwhile, let's study biology. Well, hey there, biology fans. Welcome back to the podcast. This installment is all going to be about photosynthesis. We're going to look at uh, the overall equation for photosynthesis. We're going to be looking at the light dependent stage and the light independent stage of photosynthesis. All of that, of course, being C3 photosynthesis. And then we're going to have a look at C4 photosynthesis and CAM photosynthesis. Make sure that we've got our head around that as well. By the time we finish this episode, you will have, hopefully, a really good understanding of photosynthesis. Now, if you're a biology student studying Unit 3 and 4, biology in Victoria, um, I do want to say right at the very outset, before we even get into any of this discussion, that VCAR says this in the study design. They say details of the biochemical pathway mechanisms are not required. Details of the biochemical pathway mechanisms are not required. Now, what does that mean? Well, I think it's actually a little bit open to interpretation. But the way that I interpret it is this. If you've opened your textbook to look at diagrams of photosynthesis, particularly the light independent stage of photosynthesis, the Calvin cycle, you may well have just slammed your book closed again and started crying because you look at it and there's all these complicated diagrams with you know circles and wheels and arrows going in and coming out at different points. And it's actually really hard you know, I think a lot of people look at it and think, oh no, I forgot to study civil engineering before I did biology. <laughs> you feel like you probably need a civil engineering degree so just so that you can interpret the diagrams, let alone understand what they're trying to tell you. <laughs> well, I think what VCAR is saying here is that you don't need to memorize that. You'll see it in your textbook, but you don't need to memorize it. You don't need to mem remember, for example, how many carbons there are in RUBP or what RUBP stands for. You probably don't really need to remember that. All those sort of little finicky details are not going to be on the exam. But that doesn't mean that it's not helpful to look at them. And it doesn't mean that it's not helpful to understand them as you're looking at them. And in fact, I think it's actually really helpful to do that. Because if you don't, you're only going to have at best a very superficial understanding of photosynthesis. And I, th I suspect that if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably the sort of student who wants to have more than a superficial understanding of photosynthesis. You want to you want to get it, right? You want to understand it. You want to know what's going on. And so we're going to be looking, we're going to be talking about things in a bit more detail than I suspect you probably need on the exam. But to me, it's a little bit like if you were to ask a mechanic, how does a car work? How, how does the engine of a car work? And the mechanic tried to explain it to you without talking about, you know, spark plugs and pistons. And, you know, if they just tried to say, well, you know, petrol goes in and it's kind of a controlled explosion and that energy is used to make the wheels go round. You know, it's kind of true, but you'd probably find that very unsatisfying. It doesn't really help you to understand how the internal combustion engine works. In order to explain how the internal combustion engine works, the mechanic would need to talk about 
well, pistons and spark plugs and spark plug leads and distributors and, you know, like that sort of stuff, that the detail is necessary to have a real understanding, even if the exam isn't going to ask questions specifically about spark plugs. It's helpful to know about them so that you can then better explain the things. You, you know, it helps you to interpret the questions that will be on the exam. That's the point that I'm making. All right, so in this episode, we are going to talk about some of those details. All right, I'm just, that's just prior warning, but remember, you don't need to memorize them. I'm explaining it so that you'll understand it. That's not the same as saying that you need to memorize it. One thing that you do need to memorize, though, is the overall equation for photosynthesis. You must know the overall equation for photosynthesis, and you need to know it forwards, backwards, inside out, upside down. Again, it's unlikely on the exam, really, that you'll get a question that simply says, write out a balanced equation for photosynthesis. I'd be surprised if you saw that on the exam. Now, it used to be pretty common, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, but it's been many years since VCAR has asked something simple like that. But it's quite likely that you might be shown some sort of a diagram that shows carbon dioxide going into a process, and you might need to suggest what process that might be based on the fact that carbon dioxide is an input. And you should... As soon as you see carbon dioxide as an input, you should immediately be thinking this could well be photosynthesis. Okay. Um, anyway, as I said, you need to know that equation. I think it'd be crazy to go into the exam not knowing the overall equation for photosynthesis. So what is it? Well, the inputs are six carbon dioxide and 12 water molecules, and the outputs are one glucose molecule, six oxygen molecules and six water molecules. Now, if you're astute, you might have noticed that I mentioned water going in and coming out. I said there are 12 water molecules going in and six water molecules coming out. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, wouldn't it, e wouldn't it be easier just to talk about six water molecules going in and none coming out? If 12 go in and six come out, that's kind of the same as six going in and none coming out, right? The process is using six water molecules. And while that's true, and it's not actually wrong to write it that way either. I mean, you could write it six carbon dioxide plus six water molecules, and then the outputs as one glucose molecule and six oxygens. You could write it that way, but it doesn't have the same explanatory power. It doesn't help you to understand what's happening in the light-dependent stage and the light-independent stages, which we'll get to in a few moments, all right? But but the essentially, to sum off this discussion, uh, the light-dependent stage of photosynthesis uses 12 water molecules, and it uses all 12 of those 12 water molecules. The light-independent stage produces six water molecules, but they're not, they're not six of the 12 water molecules that went into the light-dependent stage. They're six brand-new water molecules that are made in the light-independent stage. So 12 go in, and all get used, and six new ones come out. So I think it actually helps to write it out in that long form. Again, I'll just repeat it. Six carbon dioxide plus 12 water molecules. Those are the inputs. The outputs are one glucose, six oxygen molecules, and six water molecules. And normally when we write that equation, you'd write an arrow between the inputs and the outputs. You'd write light above the arrow and chlorophyll below the arrow. And what that's telling us is that it's the energy in light that's used to drive that biochemical process. And it happens only if there's chlorophyll present. That's why we write light and chlorophyll on the arrow. All right, so that is the process, as you know, as we look at it as, a, as an overall process of inputs and outputs. In a moment, though, we're going to look at photosynthesis in well, quite a bit more detail, and we'll look. We'll start by looking at the light-dependent and light-independent stages of photosynthesis. But before we do that, it's probably worth taking a few moments just to talk about where photosynthesis takes place. And obviously, it takes place in plants and in photosynthetic cells in plants. That mostly in most plants, that would be the palisade and spongy mesophyll cells of leaves, you know, because they're the cells that have 
chloroplasts in them. Of course, in some plants like cactuses, the stems have chloroplasts in them and they would be the cells that are carrying out photosynthesis. But nevertheless, cells with chloroplasts are cells that carry out photosynthesis. Chloroplast itself is obviously an organelle. Um, it's bound by two layers of membrane. And then within that enclosed space, enclosed by two layers of membrane, there are further little membrane-bound discs called thylakoid discs. Um, it's, those thylakoid discs are what contain the chlorophyll that's needed for photosynthesis. So chlorophyll is in the thylakoid discs. And those thylakoid discs are arranged in the chloroplast in these sort of collections of like a stack of thylakoid discs all piled up on each other. If you sort of picture um, a stack of pancakes or something like that, um, that's what the thylakoid discs are like, all in a, in a stack. And a stack of thylakoid discs is called a granum. The plural of granum is grana. One granum, two grana. And those thylakoid discs are bathed in a fluid called stroma. All right, so outside the thylakoid discs, but within the chloroplast, is a fluid that we refer to as stroma. Now, as I said, photosynthesis takes place in two stages, the light-dependent stage and the light-independent stage. The light-dependent stage takes place in the thylakoid discs, and the light-independent stage takes place in the stroma outside those thylakoid discs, but within the chloroplast. Okay, let's focus on the light-dependent stage of photosynthesis, which of course, again, takes place in those thylakoid discs. Now, we call it the light-dependent stage because, not surprisingly, it's dependent on light. In fact, it, the chlorophyll in those thylakoid discs uses the energy in sunlight, essentially, to split the hydrogens off 12 water molecules. Okay, now, what, if we've got 12 water molecules, that's 24 hydrogens and of course 12 oxygen atoms. Um, so we split 24 hydrogens off 12 water molecules. And that of course leaves, as I said, 12 oxygen atoms, which stick to each other to form six oxygen molecules and they get thrown away right there at the beginning. Okay, the oxygen gets chucked out of the light dependent stage because it's not necessary for anything. You know, the, the water is only, the only reason we wanted the oxygen is because because water is a really good way for the plant to get hydrogen. But it's the hydrogen that it wants. The oxygen is just packaging. It's like when you bought a phone and you know, and you just chuck the box away. You didn't buy it for the box. You don't need the box. You don't want the box. You want the phone that's in the box. So you take the phone out, chuck the box away. That's exactly what plants do with those 12 water molecules they take in. Take in 12 water molecules, keep the hydrogens, chuck away the oxygen box. Okay, so that's where the six oxygen molecules come out of photosynthesis, is right there at the very beginning in the light-dependent stage. But that leaves us, within the thylakoids, that leaves us with 24 hydrogen ions, or we could say 24 protons. Now let me just talk about that for a little bit, because that's something that confuses a lot of students. If you're reading online or in some textbooks, they'll talk about protons rather than hydrogen ions. So what's that about? I'm sure that you know that an atom, you probably learned this in probably year seven or year eight, you've learned that an atom is made of a nucleus that contains protons and neutrons orbited by negatively charged electrons. So if we look at a carbon atom, for example, it has six protons and six neutrons in the nucleus. So it's got an atomic mass of 12 and an atomic number of six, right? Six protons, six neutrons, and it's orbited by six electrons. Okay, that's a carbon atom. A hydrogen atom is a little bit unusual because it doesn't have any neutrons in its nucleus. It's just got one proton and it's orbited by one electron. That's what a hydrogen atom is like. But if that electron is taken away from it, <laughs> then all that's left is the nucleus, which is just a proton. So when you hear someone talking about protons, that's what they're talking about. A proton is a hydrogen ion that's lost the hydrogen ion, which is a hydrogen atom that's lost its electron. They mean the same thing. All right, let's get a little bit deeper 
into the weeds on light, the light dependent stage of photosynthesis, because it's a little bit simplistic to just say that the energy in sunlight is used to split oxygens away from the hydrogens of the water. You know, that's a bit simplistic. In fact, what happens is that in the membrane of the thylakoid, the membrane of the thylakoid, there are a collection of protein complexes, these big fancy proteins that are involved in the light-dependent stage of photosynthesis. The two most important of those are called photosystem 1 and photosystem 2. And it's those protein complexes that contain the chlorophyll that's responsible for absorbing light energy. Okay, photosystem 2 and photosystem 1. But there are a couple of other proteins as well that I'll, I'll mention in passing. Again, you know, remember VCAR says you don't really need to memorize any of these names. I'm just using them in the process of explaining them. All right, so when light hits photosystem 2, photosystem 2 grabs a water molecule and splits the hydrogens off it. And holding those hydrogens to the oxygen were two high-energy electrons. Okay, what really matters here is the electrons. So the electrons come off, come out of the water, um, leaving, so now in the stroma, in, in, not in the stroma, in the thylakoid space, inside the thylakoid, we've got an oxygen, two hydrogens have been split off it, and the electrons, the high energy electrons that were holding those hydrogens onto the oxygen are released into photosystem two, and they travel through photosystem two and then as they, they flow through photosystem 2, they then flow out of photosystem 2 into another protein called cytochrome. And then from cytochrome, they flow into photosystem 1, which absorbs more sunlight and powers up the electrons. And then the electrons flow into NADP plus reductase. So you sort of picture this, these, these electrons that have come out of the water molecule are being passed along the membrane from one protein to another protein to another protein. Some of those proteins are absorbing sunlight, which is powering up the electrons, but the electrons are flowing through the proteins. And as electrons flow through anything, they can be, that flow of electrons can be used to do work, right? This is the idea of a battery. Remember when you were in year seven and you were playing with batteries in your science class and you connect up a battery, you connect up a wire to the negative end of the battery and the positive end of the battery and you put a globe in the middle and the globe lights up. What's happening is the electrons flowing through that wire can be used to do work, to light up a globe or to make a sound or something like that, right? As long as the electrons are flowing, they can be used to do work. Now, thinking about that battery, right? It's actually a pretty good metaphor for what's happening here. With a battery, if you disconnect the wire from the positive terminal of the battery, the light will go off, right? Because the electrons stop flowing. The electrons, they come out of the negative end of the battery, right? Because electrons are negatively charged. They go through the wire, and they'll keep on flowing as long as it's connected up to the positive end of the battery. Or another way of saying that, as long as there's something there to accept those electrons, which is what the positive terminal of the battery does. As long as that there's something to keep on taking electrons in, then the electrons will keep coming out of the negative terminal and flowing through that wire. All right, if you can picture that. Well, that's exactly what happens across this membrane. These electrons come out of the water molecule. They flow from one protein to another protein to another protein along that thylakoid membrane. And then finally, when they get to a protein at the end called NADP plus reductase, that NADP plus reductase grabs a molecule called NADP plus, and the NADP plus takes two electrons, which now makes it have a slightly negative charge, right? It was positively charged, NADP plus, gets two electrons, it's now slightly negatively charged. So what happens is now a hydrogen ion from the stroma sticks on it to become NADPH, right? If you picture that, NADP plus must have a positive charge, gets two electrons, it's now, I guess, NADP minus, but when a hydrogen sticks on it, it becomes NADPH with neither a positive charge nor a negative charge. Okay, you with me so far? So let's just think about what we've got now at this point of the discussion. Inside, we've talked about these electrons that flow along through the membrane and get picked up by NADPH. So outside in the stroma now, we've got an NADPH molecule. Inside, we've got an oxygen, and we've also got two hydrogen ions that came off that oxygen. 
But what I didn't mention before, but I will now, is as those electrons flow through the protein, through the membrane, remember, just like electrons flowing through a wire can be used to light up a globe, the electrons flowing through the membrane can be used to do work as well. And that protein called cytochrome, which they flow through, uses the flow of electrons, the energy of that flow of electrons, to pump two hydrogen ions from the stroma down into the thylakoid. All right. So now what we've actually got in the thylakoid is an oxygen, two hydrogens from the water, another two hydrogens that were pumped in by cytochrome, and on the outside in the stroma, we've got our NADPH. All right. Those four hydrogens that we now have in the thylakoid mean that inside the thylakoid, there's a high concentration of hydrogen, right? Because, you know, hydrogen is being pumped in from the stroma into the thylakoid. So the concentration of hydrogen is now higher inside the thylakoid. And so all four of those hydrogens, the two that were ripped off the water, the two that were pumped in by cytochrome, now there's a, you know, there's a diffusion gradient for them to move out of the thylakoid back into the stroma, right? Because there's a, a, there's a concentration gradient. There's a higher concentration of hydrogen in the thylakoid than outside it. But also there's an electrical gradient because those hydrogen ions are protons. They're positively charged ions. So it's more positively charged inside the, the, the thylakoid and relatively negatively charged outside. So... All things being equal, those hydrogens would cross back across the membrane into the stroma, but they can't because the membrane, just like the plasma membrane of a cell, is made of phospholipids. And inside the membrane, there are all these polar, sorry, non-polar, non-polar fatty acid tails which repel anything with a charge on it. I mean, they even repel things that are polar, just charged a bit at one end like water. They absolutely repel things that have an overall charge on them like hydrogen ions do. So they can't just cross the membrane. But that brings us to another protein that's in the membrane of the thylakoid, and its name is ATP synthase. Now, good name, ACE tells us it's an enzyme, and it's an enzyme that synthesizes ATP because those hydrogens that so desperately want to get out of the thylakoid because of this strong concentration gradient and electrical gradient, of course, they don't really want to do anything because, well, they don't have brains, but there's a very strong uh, concentration gradient pulling them out of the thylakoid. What happens is they flow out through ATP synthase. And ATP synthase, as these hydrogens flow through ATP synthase, they actually cause ATP synthase to literally spin around. You know, if you imagine this being sort of like the exhaust fan in a kitchen or something like that, uh, as, as these hydrogen ions, these protons flow out of the thylakoid into the stroma, they make part of this ATP synthase molecule literally spin around physically. And as it spins around, part of the protein grabs phosphates inorganic phosphates, and joins them onto ADP molecules to make ATP. So at the end of all of this, what happens, of course, is, is you know, just again, thinking about the numbers of everything, um, we had two hydrogen ions from the water, plus another two that were pumped in by cytochrome as, as the electrons flowed through it. So that gave us four hydrogens. Those four hydrogens flow out through ATP synthase, um, which means now we've got, I guess, technically four hydrogens outside in the stroma, but two of them came from the stroma, so they don't count. And remember, one hydrogen from the stroma was used to make ADPH. So we've now really only got one extra hydrogen outside in the stroma. So, so at the end of the light-dependent stage of photosynthesis, from each water molecule we have one NADPH molecule and one hydrogen ion extra left over. Now, it's a bit more complicated than that, but at the end of the light-dependent stage, from each water molecule, we have one NADPH molecule and one hydrogen ion. Now, of course, we had 12 water molecules. So what that means is we have 12 NADPH molecules and 12 hydrogen ions in the stroma. And in addition to that, we've also generated 18 ATP molecules 
because of all those hydrogens flowing through ATP synthase. So at the end of the light dependent stage, just to recap this, at the end of the light dependent stage, the outputs of the light dependent stage, which you do need to know, okay? You don't need to remember all the complex details that we've just gone through. If you understand them, awesome. But what you need to remember is that at the end of the light dependent stage, the outputs are 12 NADPH molecules, 12 hydrogen ions, 18 ATP molecules, and six oxygen molecules. Reactions. Let's take a look at the light reaction. Make it chemical energy when light is captured. Electrons flow through the photosystems. Flowing so fast you might have missed them. Within the chloroplast lies the action. The thylakoid membrane is where it happens. ATP and NADPH are products of light, water, air, and space. Photosynthesis. Let's get into this discussion of sunlight and transfer of energy. Photosynthesis. Let's get into into this process of chemical reactions and synergy photosynthesis let's get into this discussion of sunlight and transfer of energy photosynthesis let's get into this process of is your brain full yet <laughs> i bet that it is but we're going to try and cram some more into it yet let's move on now and talk about the light independent stage of photosynthesis which is all centered around this most magnificent process called the Kelvin cycle, um, which is catalyzed by an enzyme called Rubisco. Rubisco, the most plentiful enzyme on Earth. There's more Rubisco on Earth than any other enzyme. Now, the word Rubisco, by the way, it's not, I mean, that's an, an acronym, really. It stands for ribulose-1,5-bisphosphate carboxylase slash oxygenase. <laughs> Quite a mouthful. You can see why people call it Rubisco. kind of rolls off the tongue a little bit better than ribulose-1,5-bisphosphate carboxylase slash oxygenase, doesn't it? <laughs> Um, you may see it written in a couple of different ways. Um, in the study design, it's written in lowercase um, with a capital R, but the rest of it is lowercase Rubisco. Um, I like when I see it written R-U, like capital R, lowercase U, capital B, lowercase I-S, capital C, capital A-O. I like it like that because... To me, the end of those names, like carbo, like remember, it's I'll just say its name again, ribulose-1,5-bisphosphate, but the end of it's important, carboxylase slash oxygenase. Now, what that means, the A's again tells us it's an enzyme. Carboxylase is an enzyme that uses carbon dioxide, and oxygenase is an enzyme that uses oxygen. Okay, so its name actually matters, right? Ribulose-1,5-bisphosphate refers to a molecule called ribulose-1,5-bisphosphate. <laughs> but the carboxylase slash oxygenase is really important because, as we'll see, this Rubisco molecule can act as either a carboxylase or as an oxygenase. It can do both, and that matters. That is important for you to know. All right, so under ideal situations, under ideal circumstances, it acts as a carboxylase. That is, it uses carbon dioxide. Of course, you know that one of the inputs to the light-dependent, the light-independent stage of photosynthesis, I should say, the light, one of the, I'll say that again, one of the inputs to the light-independent stage of photosynthesis is six carbon dioxide molecules. Ideally, Rubisco will take those six carbon dioxide molecules and use them in the Kelvin cycle. Now, we call it the Kelvin cycle because it cycles. It goes around and around. And it's a little bit hard to picture the Kelvin cycle in your head as I'm describing it in words. So you may like to look at a diagram of this as we're talking about it. But I'm going to try and I'll, I'll sort of simplify this, you know, really as I'm talking about it. Again, the details are not something you really need to remember. It's the gist of it, the principle of it that really matters. In the stroma of a chloroplast, there's a five-carbon compound called RUBP, or ribulose-1,5-bisphosphate is what that stands for, RUBP. I'll just call it RUBP. But remember, it's got five carbons in it. 
And as the Calvin cycle turns, that five carbon molecule, RUBP, grabs a carbon dioxide and they together become two three carbon molecules called G3P. All right, so if you, if you can picture this, we've got a five carbon molecule grabs another carbon in carbon dioxide. So now there are six carbons all together, but they form two three carbon molecules. But you see, we haven't lost any carbons because five plus one is six divided by two is three. This incidentally is why we call this kind of photosynthesis C3 photosynthesis. And that becomes important because soon we're going to be talking about another kind of photosynthesis called C4 photosynthesis. But we call this one C3 photosynthesis because when RUBP, five carbons, grabs carbon dioxide, one carbon, that gives us six carbons, which is used to form two three carbon molecules. So as we're looking at this overall, because, you know, we're talking, that's just one. RUBP and one carbon dioxide, but let's talk about it in total because we've actually got six carbon dioxide molecules, don't we, that go into the Kelvin cycle. Six carbon dioxide molecules get picked up by six RUBP molecules, and that gives us 12 of these three carbon G3P molecules. All right. Now, this whole process, by the way, is driven by the energy in ATP and NADPH. Right? So the ATP and the NADPH from the light-dependent stage are used to power this process. All right. But that, those 12 three-carbon molecules then go around this Calvin cycle, and two of them, two of those three-carbon molecules, out of the 12 of them, two of those three-carbon molecules are used to make one glucose molecule, which, of course, has six carbons in it. All right, that makes sense, right? We've got 12 three-carbon molecules. Two of those 12 three-carbon molecules are used to make one glucose with six carbons, and the other 10 are used to be recycled back into RUBP, right? Because the other 10 three-carbon molecules, that gives us 30 carbons in total, those 30 carbons can be used to make six five-carbon molecules because six times five is 30, okay? So again, let me just try and recap this in a nice, simple way. <laughs> Easier said than done. But we've got a five-carbon, sorry, we've got six five-carbon molecules that take six carbon dioxide molecules, giving us 12 three-carbon molecules. Two of those become glucose. The other 10 get recycled back into RUBP, those five carbon molecules, which then the cycle goes around. They take in another six carbon dioxides, which gives us another 12 three carbon molecules. Two of those become glucose. The other 10 get recycled back into RUBP, who take another six carbon dioxide, giving us 12 three carbon molecules. Two of those become glucose. The other 10 get recycled back into into six of those five carbon RUBPs that take another six carbon dioxides and so on. It goes around and around and around, hence the name, the Calvin cycle. All right, again, the inputs and outputs are the most important thing for you to remember, okay? All those, those little details are not so important, but what you have to remember is that six carbon dioxides come in, those are the inputs to the light, independent stage of photosynthesis or the Calvin cycle. And the output is one glucose molecule. Okay, And of course, all of our ATP molecules get turned into ADP and all of our NADPH molecules get turned into NADP plus again. Um, so in other words, we, remember we had 18 ATP from the light dependent stage. They get turned into 18 ADP and 18 inorganic phosphates. And we had 12 NADPH from the light dependent stage. They get turned into 12 NADP plus and 12 hydrogen protons, hydrogen ions. All right, beautiful. So for every six carbon dioxides, we get one glucose. That's the key thing from the Calvin cycle. Process of chemical reactions. The Calvin cycle or dark reaction doesn't need direct sunlight for it to run right. CO2 from the air enters the chloroplast, mixing with organic molecules for the last time. With the help of the enzyme Rubisco, called the fixation. I thought you knew this, yo. It forms a carbohydrate known as G3P. It's created, recreated, and recycled, you see. Photosynthesis.
synthesis. Let's get into this discussion of sunlight and transfer of energy. Photosynthesis. Let's get into this process of chemical reactions and synergy. Photosynthesis. Let's get into this discussion of sunlight and transfer of energy. Photosynthesis. Let's get Now, the thing about the Kelvin cycle that is really worth talking about is that while it's great, while it's really great, most of the time for most plants, it doesn't work very well when it's hot. And there are a couple of reasons for that, but but the most important reason probably is that when the temperature is hot, carbon dioxide doesn't dissolve very well in water. Carbon dioxide loses its solubility when the temperature gets too hot. And so in the stroma of the chloroplast, when it's hot, there will be more oxygen than carbon dioxide. Now, under ideal circumstances, when it's cool, and you know, if there were equal amounts of carbon dioxide and oxygen, Rubisco favors carbon dioxide. It has a stronger attraction, a stronger affinity for carbon dioxide than it does for oxygen. But when it gets hot and there's a lot more oxygen there than carbon dioxide, because carbon dioxide doesn't dissolve very well in water when it's hot, because there's more oxygen there, Rubisco tends to use oxygen more than carbon dioxide, simply because there's more of it there. It's kind of, in a way, it's almost like the oxygen becomes a competitive inhibitor for Rubisco. it outcompetes carbon dioxide for the active side of Rubisco. So Rubisco starts to become, instead of becoming, instead of being an a carbon, do, so I'll start that again, instead of being a carboxylase, it starts to become an oxygenase. And that is what we call photorespiration. Sounds like a good thing, photorespiration, but it's not. It's a bad thing. It's a very bad thing because remember the whole idea of the Kelvin cycle is we've got this five carbon molecule RUBP that grabs a one carbon carbon dioxide, giving us six carbons that can be then used to make two three carbon molecules right? And then two of those are used to make glucose and so on. But if if Rubisco is grabbing oxygen instead of carbon dioxide, there's no carbon coming in. And so RUBP can't become two, three carbon molecules because it's a five carbon molecule, but without another carbon, it can't become a five carbon, can't become two, three carbon molecules. So the upshot of all that is that this Calvin cycle doesn't produce glucose when the temperature is hot. When the temperature is hot, the Kelvin cycle doesn't work because oxygen's not supplying the carbon that's needed to make the glucose. That is a problem. It's a problem in hot climates. And for that reason, in hot climates, a lot of plants use another photosynthetic pathway called C4 photosynthesis. C4 photosynthesis. C4 photosynthesis is a solution to photorespiration. C4 photosynthesis is more efficient when the temperature's hot. C4 photosynthesis allows the plant to continue making glucose when it's hot. Now you might say, well, why don't all plants do C4 photosynthesis? And the answer is really pretty simple. Overall, C4 photosynthesis is less efficient than C3 photosynthesis. It's not as good, you know, if, if a plant that lives in cool conditions where it can do C3 photosynthesis, it's better off to do C3 photosynthesis. It's a more efficient process. But in a hot climate where C3 photosynthesis doesn't work very well, then C4 photosynthesis is better than nothing, better than photorespiration. And before we get into talking about what C4 photosynthesis actually is, let's just take a moment and think about the sorts of plants that do C4 photosynthesis. Not surprisingly, they're the kinds of plants that grow in hot climates. And they tend to be sort of grassy plants, most of them. So things like sugarcane, which you know grows in hot climates, like in Australia, sugarcane is mostly grown in Queensland where it's hot um, because... Sugarcane is a C4 plant. It does C4 photosynthesis. Uh, Corn is a C4 plant. Um, Most Australian grasses, actually, most Australian native grasses are C4 plants. And in fact, very interestingly, if you're interested in lawns, I really like lawns. (laughs) Bit of a lawn nut. Anyway, that's a story for another day. But some lawns grow really well in hot conditions. 
uh, in Shepparton, where I've spent many years of my life, uh, in Shepparton, which is a pretty hot climate, most people grow a kind of grass called kaikuyu grass. And the reason why they grow kaikuyu, like if you're familiar with Shepparton, you know, the beautiful green lawns around Lake Victoria um, in the middle of Shepparton there, that's all kaikuyu grass. And the reason why we grow kaikuyu grass so well in Shepparton is because it's pretty hot in Shepparton. Shepparton's a pretty hot climate, especially in summer, and regular grasses don't do that well. You know, things like perennial ryegrass is a C3 plant. It does regular C3 photosynthesis. It doesn't cope very well under hot conditions. But kaikuyu grass is a C4 grass. You know, it does really, really well in those very hot summers. But in the cool winters, they kind of go, it goes a bit yellow. It's not that great because it's not very efficient in the cool. It's not, as, it's not as good as C3 photosynthesis, whereas perennial ryegrass goes really nice and green in the winter, but in the summer it struggles. Uh, whereas kaikuyu does really well in the heat, not so well in the cool, but that's because it's a C4 plant. So what is this C4 photosynthesis? Before we even get into you know looking at, at it in detail, I want to give you an analogy because if you understand my analogy, I think you'll understand C4 photosynthesis. If you have kids and you don't want them to drink Coke, you want them to drink water, the best way to do that, in my experience, is don't give them Coke, right? Because if you give them a choice of Coke and water, they will choose Coke every time. So if you don't want them to have Coke, you just give them water. You leave the Coke somewhere else. You give them water. They'll drink the water as long as there's no Coke there, <laughs> right? So that's a really great, I think, a really great analogy for C4 photosynthesis because that's the strategy that C4 plants take, right? The C4 plant says, well, look, look at Rubisco here, this great enzyme, fantastic, but under hot conditions, it tends to use oxygen instead of carbon dioxide as its substrate. And that's a problem, photorespiration. The solution is don't offer it any oxygen. If we can keep the oxygen away from the Rubisco, then Rubisco will quite happily use carbon dioxide. All right, it's exactly the same thing as not giving Coke to kids if you want them to drink water. If you don't give, car if you don't give any oxygen to Rubisco, it will use carbon dioxide. Now, the way that C4 plants do this, the way they bring this into effect, is using a particular sort of a structure. It's actually called Kranz anatomy, not that that particularly matters. But they've got two different kinds of photosynthetic cells. They've got the regular mesophyll cells, like all plants do, uh, that do the light-dependent stage of photosynthesis. But then they've got these other photosynthetic plants called bundle sheath cells. And the bundle sheath cells are deeper in the leaf. They're further away from the stomata. They're actually sort of gathered around where the, um, the vascular tissue is, like the xylem and the phloem. Uh, but they're further away from the stomata. All right. Now, the, the process of photosynthesis is kind of divided into two. The mesophyll cells do the light-dependent stage, and the bundle sheath cells do the light-independent stage. And the way that they that that happens is that the chloroplasts in both of those cells have mutated enzymes in them. The, the chloroplasts in the, the mesophyll cells, some of their proteins are mutated so that they can't do the Calvin cycle very well. And in the bundle sheath cells, some of their proteins are mutated so that they can't do the light dependent stage of photosynthesis. All right. So we've got these two, basically two different kinds of chloroplasts, one that can do light dependent stage and one that can do the light independent stage. And in interestingly, in the bundle sheath cells, those chloroplasts contain almost no thylakoids. They've got a few, but they're defective. <laughs> Whereas in the mesophyll cells, they've got heaps of thylakoids because they work just perfectly well in the mesophyll cells. Now, of course, the light-dependent stage is happening just fine out there in the mesophyll cells, but it doesn't involve carbon dioxide, right? I mean, it's got water going into it, um, oxygen coming out of it. We want to keep that oxygen that's coming out of the light-dependent stage away from Rubisco, all right? But it doesn't really matter in the mesophyll cell because Rubisco is hardly doing anything in the mesophyll cell because the light-independent light stage doesn't happen in the mesophyll cells, right? So in the, in the mesophyll cell, all the normal things that happen in the light-dependent stage are happening. Water's going in, oxygen's coming out, NADPH is coming out, ATP's coming out, all that sort of stuff. But because the light-independent stage isn't happening in the mesophyll cells, carbon 
isn't being used. Carbon dioxide is not being used in the mesophyll cells. All right. But carbon dioxide does come into the mesophyll cells because the mesophyll cells are right near the stomata. So carbon dioxide comes in from the air through the stomata into the mesophyll cells. It's not used in the mesophyll cells because they're not doing the light, depend the light independent stage. So as the carbon dioxide comes in, it gets combined with another three carbon molecule. There's this three carbon molecule called PEP. That stands for phosphoenylpyruvate. Its name is not particularly important, but that's what PEP stands for. PEP is a very peppy sort of name, isn't it? Let's call it PEP. So this, this three carbon molecule PEP is combined with carbon dioxide by an enzyme called PEP carboxylase. Great name for an enzyme, right? PEP carboxylase, because it's carboxylating PEP. Right? So it grabs a carbon dioxide, grabs a PEP, turns them into a four carbon molecule called malate or malic acid. They mean the same thing. This is why we call this C4 photosynthesis, because the carbon dioxide is being built into a four carbon molecule. Remember in the C3 photosynthesis, Remember, we had one five-carbon molecule called RUBP that collects a carbon dioxide and gets converted into two three-carbon molecules, all right? Two three-carbon molecules, and so we call that C3 photosynthesis. In this case, the carbon dioxide is being incorporated into a four-carbon molecule called malic acid, so we call it C4 photosynthesis. That's where the name comes from. Now, that malic acid then moves into the bundle sheath cells through plasmodesmata, through these little tubes that connect up the mesophyll cells to the bundle sheath cells. So the malic acid, together with the NADPH and the ATP and everything, that all diffuses through these plasmodesmata down into the bundle sheath cells deeper in the leaf, where, remember, the chloroplasts there only do the light independent stage of photosynthesis. And there, the malate, that malic acid, that four-carbon molecule, is broken down into pyruvate, which is a three-carbon molecule, and carbon dioxide. And the carbon dioxide, of course, is then used by Rubisco in the Kelvin cycle. And it's used perfectly fine by Rubisco in the Kelvin cycle, even though the temperature is really hot because there's no oxygen there. Remember, the oxygen is out there in the mesophyll cell where the light-dependent stage of photosynthesis is happening. That oxygen doesn't get down into the bundle sheath cell. And so the carbon dioxide there will be used by Rubisco because it's got no competition. It's like bringing water into the room, but not bringing in any coke. Now that pyruvate, the three carbon molecule, gets recycled back into PEP again, phosphoenyl pyruvate, and the whole thing repeats over and over again. So essentially, this is the whole idea of C4 photosynthesis, is to separate the light-dependent stage from the light-independent stage, so that the oxygen produced by the light-dependent stage is kept away from Rubisco, so that Rubisco will use carbon dioxide instead. And of course, as a result of that, it's going to be able to make glucose. And conveniently, the bundle sheath cells, remember, are clustered around the vascular tissue of the plant, around the phloem. And so those sugars get loaded into the phloem and carried around the rest of the plant. It's beautiful, isn't it? What a great, what a great piece of design um, to, to overcome the, the problem, to, over, to be the solution, to overcome the problem of photorespiration in hot climates. Now, there's another problem that some plants need to overcome when it comes to photosynthesis, and that is the problem of needing to keep its stomata open in order to get carbon dioxide. In order to do photosynthesis, of course, the plant needs to be able to bring in carbon dioxide to use in the Kelvin cycle, in the light, independent stage of photosynthesis. But to do that, it needs to open the stomata on its leaves to let the carbon dioxide in. The problem with that is that with the stomata open, it's also going to lose water into the environment. And for some plants, plants that live in a very dry environment, like a desert environment, that can be a real problem. They can't afford to lose water. So there's another kind of photosynthesis that is a solution to that problem. And this is a kind of uh, photosynthetic pathway that we call CAM photosynthesis, that's C-A-M. Now C-A-M stands for Crassulation Acid 
metabolism. It's one of the stupidest names in all of biology because there's no such thing as crassulation acid. Like, wouldn't you think, you hear a word like crassulation acid metabolism, you would think it's a kind of metabolism that involves an acid called crassulation acid. But there is no crassulation acid. <laughs> uh, in fact, it involves an acid called malic acid or malate, the same acid we talked about in the C4 photosynthesis. So why do we call it crassulation acid metabolism or CAM? Well, the reason is that it was first discovered in a, a group of plants called stone crop plants. And the family of plants that stone crops belong to is famu, fam, family Crassulaceae, <laughs> right? So because it was discovered in family Crassulaceae, it became known as Crassulation acid metabolism. I think, frankly, it would have been much better. So in other words, it's not it's not Crassulation acid, comma, metabolism. It's Crassulation, comma, acid metabolism. <laughs> okay, it's acid metabolism that happens in Crassulaceae. Anyway, as I said, this is an adaptation of plants that live in an arid environment. It helps plants not to lose water in an arid environment. And interestingly, it involves many of the same things in C4 plants. It involves PEP carboxylase. It involves PEP. It involves malate or malic acid. It involves, you know, like it's pretty much the same, but we don't have two different kinds of cells. There are no, you know, there are just mesophyll cells. There are no bundle sheath cells. It all happens in the one cell. But the processes of photosynthesis are sort of separated kind of by time. Let me explain what I mean. During the night time, when it's dark at night, I mean, in, in the desert, if you've ever been to the desert, like if you've been to Alice Springs or something, you know that even when it's really, really hot during the day, it gets quite cold at night. Right? At night, it's not very hot. And so if a plant has its stomata open at night, it's not going to lose as much water as it will during the day. So that's exactly what these plants do. Um, you know, cactuses are a great example of plants that do this. They'll open their stomata at night when it's cool and carbon dioxide will enter the plant in the cool of the night with the stomata open. Most plants, of course, have their stomata closed at night but these plants open their stomata at night. Carbon dioxide comes in and PEP carboxylase combines the carbon dioxide with PEP to make malic acid, just like in a C4 plant. But that malic acid is stored in the large vacuole of the mesophyll cells. So throughout the night is bringing in carbon dioxide and storing it basically as malic acid in the large vacuoles of the cell. Then when the sun comes up and it starts to get really hot, the plant closes its stomata to save water loss and uses that malic acid. The malic acid comes out of the large vacuole, gets broken down into pyruvate and carbon dioxide. Uh, the pyruvate gets recycled back into PEP and the carbon dioxide is used by Rubisco in the Calvin cycle. Okay, So where C4 photosynthesis is really primarily, well, it is an adaptation to hot temperatures, CAM photosynthesis is an adaptation to dry or arid conditions because it enables the plant to keep its stomata closed during the day when it would lose the most water, but open them at night to get carbon dioxide, which it saves as malic acid and can break back down to carbon dioxide and use that during the day. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, what about plants that live in hot and dry conditions, <laughs> can they do both C4 photosynthesis and CAM photosynthesis? And the simple answer is no, not really. They'll do one or the other, um, depending on what their greatest need is, whether it's to preserve water or to you know, prevent photorespiration. But in reality, CAM photosynthesis is also somewhat of a solution to the photorespiration problem too. Because when the sun comes up, you know, for the first half of the day, it's saved up so much carbon dioxide there in the large vacuole, it's completely chock-a-block full of carbon dioxide. So the concentration of carbon dioxide in the cell is really, really high. And because of that, carbon dioxide can sort of outcompete the oxygen. Right, because it can keep the concentration of carbon dioxide really, really high because it's got so much of it saved up in the cell. So even plants that live in hot, dry conditions, uh, you know, CAM photosynthesis is a bit of a problem. It's a, it's a solution to photorespiration as well. It's not as good of a solution as C4 
photosynthesis. But it is something of a solution, but it's especially a solution for, um, for arid habitats where water loss is the biggest problem. There are some plants that can, we, we call them faculative CAM photosynthesizers. They can actually switch back and forth from one kind of of photosynthesis to another. Um, so, and a good example of this is pineapples. Now, pineapples are CAM plants. They can do CAM photosynthesis, but when it rains a lot and they've got plenty of water and they don't need to worry about saving water, um, they can switch and do C3 photosynthesis. Because remember, C3 photosynthesis is more efficient than well, it's more efficient than CAM photosynthesis. It's also more efficient than C4 photosynthesis. So a plant that's able to convert from one pathway to another pathway has the best of both worlds. But plants that just do CAM photosynthesis, cactuses are a good example, it's not that efficient. I mean, it, it's better than dying from dehydration, <laughs> but it's not as efficient a process of photosynthesis as C3 photosynthesis. So plants that do that, like cactuses, tend to be pretty slow-growing plants. Um, they're not as good at making sugars as what, as what C3 plants are. And it's also interesting, just to point this out, I think it's an interesting aside, you'll find this interesting, I'm sure, is that most plants that do cam photosynthesis tend to have very fleshy, succulent leaves, right? Like cactuses do, um, you know, for example, they've got these sort of thick, sort of juicy sort of leaves or stems or photosynthetic tissue. And the reason for that is they need great big cells with great big central vacuoles to store all of their malic acid during the night in. Right? So they've got these great big fluid-filled cells, lots of fluid there to save their malic acid in. Um, and of course, of course, it also means that they've got a lot of water stored up because they live in arid environments and they can use that water when they, you know, when it hasn't rained for a long time. Another good example, actually, of a plant that can switch between CAM photosynthesis and C3 photosynthesis is pig face, which, you know, if you live near the beach, you will have seen pig face growing on the sand dunes. It's got these, you know, bright pink flowers, um, but the leaves are kind of real fleshy leaves. Again, um, classic CAM photosynthesizer. But because it lives, you know, near the beach where it often does rain, uh, when it rains, they're able to bring in water and use C3 photosynthesis. But of course, they live on sand dunes and when it stops raining, the water all drains away into the sand. <laughs> so once again, it's like they're living in the desert and they'll switch back and start doing CAM photosynthesis. It's pretty cool that they can do that, don't you think? <clears throat> All right, well, before we finish this episode, there's one last thing that I, I want to just discuss briefly, and that is the factors that affect the rate of photosynthesis. And again, this is something in the study design. It's something that you need to understand. One of the things that affects the rate of photosynthesis, of course, is light intensity. Um, as a general principle, the greater the light intensity, the faster photosynthesis can go. Um, another thing that affects the rate of photosynthesis is the color of light. Chlorophyll doesn't do very well, in fact, doesn't do very well at all with green light. Um, green light can't be used by plants for photosynthesis. They tend to use light at the blue end of the spectrum and the red end of the spectrum. Chlorophyll can absorb blue light and red light uh, but doesn't do very well at all with green light. And you might be sort of thinking, well, that's weird, you know, why don't plants use green light? I mean, plants love green. They wear green. It's their favorite color. <laughs> They're always dressed in green. Well, the reason, of course, that plants look green is because when the when you know all the colors of the rainbow hit the plant, they absorb the red light, they absorb the blue light, but the green light bounces off them or goes right through them. They, they're not using the green light, it bounces off. And so to our eyes, plants look green. But the reason they look green is because green light is the only light that they're not extracting. There's the only light that they're not using for their own purposes. So light intensity, light color. Uh, another, of course, is water availability um, for the very reason we've talked about when we were talking about cam plants. Um, if a plant runs out of water, it will lose turgor and its stomata will close. And when its stomata close, then it can't take carbon dioxide in for photosynthesis. But of course, water is also an input to the light-dependent stage of photosynthesis. So that's another reason why a lack of water will cause 
photosynthesis to slow down. Um, the temperature is another factor that affects the rate of photosynthesis. Um, generally speaking, photosynthesis works fastest at around about 20 to 25 degrees Celsius. If the temperature gets sort of above 45 degrees Celsius, it really doesn't work. And again, remember, at higher temperatures, Rubisco has a higher affinity for oxygen. It's much more likely to bind to oxygen and less likely to use carbon dioxide. So, you know, again, as we were talking about C4 photosynthesis, hopefully it became very clear that temperature is an important factor affecting the rate of photosynthesis. Around about 25 degrees is ideal. And finally, another factor that affects the rate of photosynthesis is, of course, the atmospheric carbon dioxide concentration. Um, if the carbon dioxide concentration is too low, that of course is going to slow down photosynthesis because carbon dioxide is an input to the light independent stage of photosynthesis. Now, of course, with any of these things, there's always going to be one factor which we call the limiting factor. You know, if photosynthesis is going at a particular rate, you've got to ask, well, why isn't it going faster? And at that point, there's there's always going to be one thing that's preventing it from going faster. We call that thing the limiting factor. Let's just say that it's light intensity. Let's say photosynthesis is going at a particular rate and the reason it's not going any faster is because of you know, low light intensity. We could prove that it's low light intensity by increasing the light intensity. If we increased the light intensity and the rate of photosynthesis suddenly went up, then we would know that it was light intensity that was holding it back. It was light intensity that was the limiting factor. But if we turned the light intensity up and kept turning it up and kept turning it up, <laughs> got brighter and brighter and brighter, what we'd find is the rate of photosynthesis would start to plateau. It would get to a point where it's no longer going up. We know at that point that light intensity is no longer the limiting factor. Something else is now slowing it down. Something else has become the limiting factor. It might be carbon dioxide concentration, or it might be the color of the light, or it might be the temperature, or whatever it might be. But there will be something else that has now become the limiting factor. And this is not just true in photosynthesis. This is true in any biological process. There will always be a limiting factor, something that's preventing a biochemical pathway from going faster than it currently is. And by the way, since I've just used that term biochemical pathway, what a nice way to finish this episode. Um, photosynthesis is a biochemical pathway. It's not a chemical reaction. It's a whole series of chemical processes, chemical reactions, all linked together. A whole lot of exergonic Reactions linked to anabolic reactions. Reactions that release energy linked to reactions that require energy. All one after the other in these great big long chain reactions. And we call that a biochemical pathway. And of course, it's biochemical pathways, all biochemical pathways are facilitated, catalyzed is a better word, catalyzed by enzymes catalyzed by enzymes. And you know, of course, that enzymes are very sensitive to things like temperature and pH. Okay, So again, temperature and pH are two things that can affect the rate at which photosynthesis takes place, simply because you know, if the cells become too acidic, some of those important enzymes, Rubisco itself, for example, uh, may not work as well because they're now no longer at their optimal pH. And if the temperature is too high or too low, again, enzymes don't work at their optimal rate if, if the temperature is not the optimal temperature. Beautiful. What a nice way to finish by talking about biochemical pathways. The next episode of Dauchi's Biology will be focusing on another biochemical pathway, this time cellular respiration. In the next episode, we'll be talking about cellular respiration and anaerobic fermentation, um, another really exciting biochemical pathway. Can't wait to be back and, and talking with you about those. But in the meanwhile, if you have a question or a comment or a tip that you'd like to share with other podcast listeners, uh, a question that's come out of this episode or any other episode, or a question that you might have about cellular respiration, uh, please don't hesitate to send it to me at biologypodcast at gmail.com. I check that email address every day. And if there's a question there, I'll, I'll reply to it to you. 
Um, and if it's a question that I think will be really helpful to other people as well, we'll talk about it on the next episode of the podcast. So help me to make the podcast good for you by sending your questions. Again, that address is biologypodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. Let's take a look at the light reaction. Make a chemical energy when light is captured. Electrons flow through the photosystems. Flowing so fast you might have missed them. Within the chloroplast lies the action. The thylakoid membrane is where it happens. ATP and NADPH are products of light, water, air, and space. Photosynthesis. Let's get into this discussion of sunlight and transfer of energy. Photosynthesis. Let's get into this process of chemical reactions and synergy photosynthesis let's get into this discussion of sunlight and transfer of energy photosynthesis let's get into this process of chemical reactions Calvin cycle or dark reaction doesn't need direct sunlight for it to run right. CO2 from the air enters the chloroplast, mixing with organic molecules for the last time. With the help of the enzyme Rubisco, called the fixation. I thought you knew this, yo. It forms a carbohydrate known as G3P. It's created, recreated, and recycled, you see. Photosynthesis. Let's get into this discussion of sunlight and transfer of energy. Photosynthesis. Let's get into this process of chemical reactions and synergy photosynthesis let's get into this discussion of sunlight and transfer of energy photosynthesis let's get into this process of chemical reactions leaves on trees and evil weeds meet needs making oxygen we need to breathe you want to learn it with these you want to master the keys it's photosynthesis listen to this please leaves on trees and evil weeds meet needs making oxygen we need to breathe you want to learn it with these you want to master the Let's get into this discussion of sunlight and transfer of energy. Photosynthesis. Let's get into this process of chemical reaction to synergy. Photosynthesis. Let's get into this discussion of sunlight and transfer of energy. Photosynthesis. Let's get into this process of chemical reaction.